paved with gold Lifted some stones Saw the skin and bones Of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house Where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face. and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who cannot watch Heart of the Matter live on television, they can go to www.hotm.tv and watch its streaming video from anywhere in the world. We uh, welcome those who are watching in on the NRB DirecTV Channel 378 network. And for those who are going to be listening on AM 820, uh, The Truth, we welcome them all. In addition to streaming video, you can go and reach 240 archive shows at HOTM.TV. You can also go to YouTube, type in Sean McCraney or Heart of the Matter. You can reach five or 600 segments of the program to send to your friends. And, of course, as I said, you can also hear rebroadcasts of Heart of the Matter at KUTR AM 820, the truth right here in Utah. Um, you know, AM 820, uh, the truth is the only radio station I listen to. And I, I'm not saying that. I... We don't have any kind of monetary exchange or anything. I don't get paid to say that. I literally like it the best of uh, Christ Christian talk radio in Utah. So check them out, AM820, The Truth. Now, speaking of hearing Heart of the Matter from anywhere in the world, we have a huge fan here with us, which I had the pleasure of meeting. His name is Bobby Gilpin, and he hails... He's seen all the shows, by the way, and he hails from the UK. Bobby, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. How's the trip been? Is this your first time to, to the States and to Utah? It's been my first time in America, my first time in Utah. Haven't been on a plane for about 14 years before now. No kidding. And married? Yes, been married for seven years to Vicky. Uh, children? No, no children as yet. A little dog. A little dog. A little fat dog. <laughs> a little fat dog, even. Uh, and now, Bobby, what do you spend your time doing over there in the UK? Um, over there, I, spend, I, I go to church. I work for the um, for the police over there, and I generally spend a lot of time reading with friends, playing my Xbox. You know, not with enough type of stuff. Got it. And do you have an interest? Uh, has the Lord put on your heart an interest in Mormonism? Yes, absolutely. And you're here with, tell us about who you're here with, with Russ East, right? That's right. I'm over here with um, Russ East from Utah Partnerships for Christ. For about 10 years now being a Christian, I've wanted to reach out to the Mormon people and felt a strong love for them. And about three or four years into that, I came across Utah Partnerships for Christ on the internet. And since then, I've been praying about when to come to Utah. Hmm. And now uh, in the UK, how is the Mormon church growing? Um, the numbers in total are around 180, 190,000. I think the statistics is one in every 404. They are growing, not on an extreme rate, but uh -huh. um, the, 
the Christian interest in them over there isn't the same as what it is being in Utah. I see. And then how is the uh, body of Christ growing over in the UK? That's growing uh, much more rapidly. We're seeing a lot of people getting saved through things like the Alpha Course. That's how I got saved. Huh. And um, a lot of charities, even what I see in the local area of Middlesbrough, through Christians Against Poverty, that kind of thing, we're seeing a lot of people getting saved. Now, uh, what did you say through the Alpha Cross? Oh, sorry, the Alpha Course. Oh, uh, what's the, what, do you know, they have a website? Yeah, it's, um, I believe it's alphacourse.org, or you can type in Alpha Course on Google. And it's basically a 10-week course, particularly prevalent in the UK, huh. looking at Christianity and how to learn the basics of the Christian faith. Fantastic. So uh, do you have anything you'd like to say? You've watched a lot of Heart of the Matter. Yeah. You're out here in Utah on a missions trip with Russ East. And, uh, and just to, what do you, is, is there something that the Lord has put on your heart? And if so, share it with, with the audience. Yeah, thank you. I'd just say, um, I'd want to say a particular hello and, uh, to, the, to the Christians and to the Mormons watching this from the UK. I know certainly as a Christian in the UK, wanting to reach out to Mormons, it can seem like quite a lonely ministry. And I, I hope this message will come out to you. There's, there's, there is those of us that want to reach out. I've set up a blog. I hope you don't mind me mentioning it. It's uh, www.mormonisminvestigated.co.uk. If you're a Christian, I'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch with me. And if you're a Mormon in the UK, please go on there. Just stay. It's the same function as this show, just comparing Mormonism with biblical Christianity. And I'd love to hear from you. We love shameless plugs on That's Heart it. of the Matter. <laughs> I've been it was that all day. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, my brother. Thanks for coming on. All right. I was a born-again Mormon moving toward Christian authenticity. The book is available at uh, bornagainmormon.com, also at utlm.org, Christian Gift and Bible, Lifeway Christian Bookstores, Gift of Grace Christian Bookstore in Springville uh, also carries the book. There are a few things more important in the life of a Christian, in the life of anybody actually, than to study the Bible verse by verse. Join us at the University of Utah every week, Sunday, from 2.30 to 3.30 as we study the Bible verse by verse. All are welcome. Go to calvarycampus.com for more information. Uh, Compassion, Clarity, and Confidence Ministry of the Magic Valley has asked me to speak at the Lighthouse in Twin Falls, Idaho tomorrow night. That's Wednesday, October 6, 7 p.m. This is a free event. Come early and get one of the uh, seats available. The Lighthouse is located at 960 Eastland Drive in Twin Falls. You can also go to LighthouseTwinFalls.com for more information. Uh, it would be great if you're LDS, if you're a seeker, if you're a Christian, if you want to know more about how the Lord can use you in your life. That's what I'll be talking about. Uh, then come and join us. It'll be a great time. Finally, Utah Christian Fellowship is having me speak on Sunday, October 17th, 6 p.m. Utah Christian Fellowship uh, on Nike Drive in West Jordan. Go to utahchristian.net for more information like a map or, or directions. Hot off the press. It's been out for about a week. Thomas Monson, prophet, seer, and revelator of the LDS Church, has a hot new book out. Very important book, theologically astounding, insightful, humble. The title, it references Thomas Monson's view of himself, and the title is To the Rescue. To the Rescue. Picture of Thomas Monson on the front. To the Rescue. Here I come to save the day. Thomas Monson, To the Rescue is the name of the book. Run, don't walk and pick up your copy of To the Rescue, 
and learn how Thomas Monson, through rain and sleet and hail and snow, has pulled infants from fires and, and dogs from kennels and old people from retirement homes and saved them from a horrible life. <sighs> Last week was LDS General Conference. We'll cover, we'll cover some of what was said by the LDS leaders at their conference next week, but I have to make an immediate commentary on the actions of some of our so-called Christian street preachers who were supposedly there reaching out to the LDS attending their conference. I would suggest that nothing the LDS leaders would have said in their multi-billion dollar conference center could have matched the repulsive acts you carried out out there on the street. I mean, do you actually think that you are reaching people, people who get up early in the morning, get all dressed up and are excited to go into this conference center and see the man they call their prophet by assailing them with vulgarities and indecent representations involving things they hold most sacred, holding up their sacred temple garments, desecrating them with blood, etc., cetera, uh, and feminine hygiene products? Uh, understand that our ministry is accused of doing similar things to the LDS, but I would argue this to the very end. We compare and contrast uh, doctrine here. Um, we poke fun of some stuff like Monson's book, and I might get argumentative at times, but we would never trample on or ridicule someone's beliefs because we know what it will do to them in terms of their receptivity toward the gospel. There's just a difference between sharing, debating, even sometimes arguing truth in love and by viciously mocking people in order to humiliate them. And while Mormonism is certainly errant in, in its faulty doctrines, their faithful members would never resort to such ugliness that some of our so-called brothers resorted to on conference weekend. When is the body of Christ going to learn that we will never overcome falsehood by the arm of the flesh? Contend for the faith by all means. Share truth even when it hurts, sure. But I am personally ashamed by some of the actions people whom I call my Christian brothers uh, and what they did against the Mormons uh, last weekend. They should be ashamed too. And with that sincere apology, uh, let's have a word of prayer. God in heaven, we love you and need you in our lives. We are humans and we are in the flesh and we do fail. So we seek you to uh, bring us your peace and love and to share truth and love courageously, uh, directly, but with love always. So uh, be with us tonight. Be with our volunteers and our staff and our audiences, wherever they may be, uh, far and wide, and help this uh, message to go out as you would want it to. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Tonight we continue on with our 2010 alphabetized topic, which compare Mormonism with biblical Christianity. Our topic tonight, priesthood part one, or the Aaronic priesthood. Now, the LDS set up this huge, albeit false premise about priesthood authority, which unsuspecting people buy hook, line, and sinker. And the false premise goes something like this. In the Old and New Testament, God authorized only certain people to act on his behalf. To support this premise, they resort to using the example of the Levites in the Old Testament who were, truly, the only ones who were allowed by God to officiate in priestly temple duties among the children of Israel. 
What the LDS do with this information, however, is they jump to our day and age and state that this exclusive authorization or authority to act in God's name instituted back in the Old Testament continues to be the case today. And this exclusive divinely assigned priesthood is only given to worthy male members of the LDS church. If you ask a so-called worthy LDS male where he got his fictional priesthood, he will say he received it or was ordained to it by another worthy male member who holds or held this priesthood first. Then when you ask that next person behind him who gave him the priesthood where he got his priesthood, he will say he received it from another earlier faithful male member who had it before him. And this line of authority thing just keeps going back, back, back. And there are some LDS who say it goes all the way back to Jesus Christ himself. Well, is this true? It depends on what you're willing to believe. Working back from the present day, worthy LDS males claim that they can literally show their priesthood line of authority. But these claims all hinge upon the claims of one man. Today, they can trace their line of authority to one man, Joseph Smith, and his claims. You see, in 1830 or so, Joseph Smith claimed he received these fictional priesthoods when resurrected beings came to earth and bestowed these fictional priesthoods upon the head of Joseph Smith by the laying on of hands. He then passed this priesthood on to other men during this time of 1830 who believed his story, and this is how men today claim to have received this authority straight from Jesus Christ. Now, Joseph purported that two priesthood restorations happened to him. The first, he said, occurred when John the Baptist appeared in 1830, laid his hands on the heads of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, who was his scribe, and bestowed the Aaronic priesthood upon them. Later, Joseph Smith claimed that Peter, James, and John showed up and bestowed what he coined the Melchizedek priesthood upon them. Tonight, we're going to examine the LDS claims to the Aaronic priesthood. Next week, we'll look at its claims to this Melchizedek priesthood. So let me explain about the biblical priesthood in general. Going all the way back to Adam, man was his own priest and presented his own sacrifices to God at that time. Recall the story of Cain and Abel offering sacrifice. Afterwards, the office of priest went to the male head of every family. We find that Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even Job all offered sacrifice to God without the intermediation of any kind of priest. Okay? The first time the word priest is used in the Bible is when it is applied to this mysterious Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. Like I said, we'll talk about Melchizedek next week. Moving on, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, the ancient manner of head of household priests was still being observed by them as they went through the desert. But on Sinai, a change in this ancient practice was made. Exodus 28 teaches us that God had a hereditary priesthood take over. And the heritage that the priesthood came from was through the tribe of Levi. 
Why the tribe of Levi? The scripture tells us in Exodus 32, 26. It says because of their zeal for the glory of God. The tribe of Levi had a zeal for the glory of God. And God said it's through them that they will be the holders of this priesthood, this Levitical priesthood. Now, two important things to remember. There are priests in the Old Testament priesthood, and there are high priests in the Old Testament priesthood. The Levitical lineage determined who was who and which was which. Let me explain. Levi had three sons, okay? So we have Levi and we have three sons. They were Gershon, Merari, and Kohath, okay? Gershon, Merari, Kohath. Then Kohath had a son named Amram, and Amram had sons named Aaron and Moses. You got that? So we have Levi, and then we have Kohath, and Kohath has two sons, Aaron and Mo has Amram, and Amram has two sons, Aaron and Moses, okay? Only those who came from the Levi, Kohath, Amram, Aaron line over here could be the high priests in the temple of God, meaning the offspring of Gershon and uh, Merari, they were able to act as subordinated priests in the temple and do those functionary duties, but they could not be high priests. How important were these hereditary lines in this priesthood? Well, let me blow your mind a little bit right here. Not even Jesus himself, uh, being from the tribe of Judah, could officiate in the Levitical priesthood duties, either as a high priest or even as a priest. You don't believe me? If you look at Hebrews 7.14, look what it says. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Okay? So you got all that so far? Now, Joseph Smith claimed that while he and Oliver Cowdery were translating the Book of Mormon in May of 1829, they retired to the woods and John the Baptist appeared and gave them, them, this elite Aaronic priesthood, okay? Numbers 3 says only the Levites can hold this priesthood or the result would be death. But Joseph claimed John the Baptist shows up and gives it to him and his buddy. Then we have to ask, what do the LDS do with this Levitical or Aaronic priesthood today? They give it to all male members of the Mormon church who are between the ages of 12 and 18. Now, listen to what the Bible says about those who held the Levitical priesthood, okay? Numbers 4, 2 through 3 says, Take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi, according to their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and upward to 50 years, all that enter into the service to do the work in the tabernacle of the congregation. What it says here is that you take from the tribe, from Levi, you take from uh, Kohath, you take those sons, and they will do the uh, work in the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, I want you to imagine something for a moment. Aaron and his sons are called by God to officiate in the Levitical priesthood, and they do so with extreme dedication and devotion. It was so serious a call that when two of Aaron's sons mingled strange fire outside of the temple, God sent fire down from heaven and torched them to death in front of all the children of Israel. And they were Aaron's own sons. This priesthood was serious business, folks. 
Now imagine for a minute that Aaron somehow visits the earth today and he walks into an LDS ward and he discovers a dozen or more boys between 12 and 18 years of age chewing gum and doing God knows what the night before, all claiming to hold this priesthood which he and his family were dedicated to a thousand years before or 2,000 years before. Are you beginning to see how the LDS err in this application of the Aaronic Priesthood? Then we have to ask, how were the biblical priests prepared to use this priesthood? What, what prepared these Levitical priests in the Old Testament to go and do this work with this Aaronic Priesthood upon them? They went through an arduous and cumbersome process of purification, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 8. This process included first a ceremonial washing, prayer over the head of a bull, the slaying of this bull, sprinkling its blood and offering the sacrifice by burning, offering bread, sacrificing two rams. Then the descendant of Aaron would be separated from the people for seven full days. And during those seven days, more animals would be sacrificed. And then the Aaronic priest between 30 and 50 years of age would be reintroduced to the congregation. And how are LDS boys prepared for their duties in the Aaronic priesthood? They turn 12, they're interviewed by their bishop who lays hands on the little snot and supposedly makes him an ordained Aaronic priesthood holder. That is such a slap in the face of God's way. Then, what exactly did the sons of Aaron and the Levitical priests do in the tabernacle once they had been completely purified? Well, they dressed themselves in very specific and ritualistic manners for uh, respective to the, to the thing they were going to function in in the temple. Then they attended a plethora of duties that are meticulously detailed in Exodus 27, Leviticus 6, Numbers 10, Deuteronomy 17, and Malachi 2.7. And here is the most important point, however. What did everything these priests do mean? What did everything that they dedicated their lives to doing in there with exactness, what did it all mean? It pointed to the finished work of Jesus, which was to come. It pointed to the finished work of Jesus. Let me repeat that. This leads us to perhaps the most important point relative to the misapplication of Aaronic priesthood today by the LDS. The Aaronic priest represented the people before God and offered the various blood sacrifices which were in anticipation of the promised Messiah to come. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, this high priest from Aaron, from Kohath, from Amram, uh, from Levi, he would... Uh, between 30 and 50 years of age, who had been purified ritualistically like no other, dressed in severely restricted ways, he would perform these rites exactly as God commanded, them, commanded him, and he would enter then into the Holy of Holies alone and offer up animal sacrifice to God for the sins of the people as a type of the Messiah to come. This was the purpose of the Aaronic Priesthood. This was the reason it was on earth. It pointed to the finished work of Jesus Christ. The finished work. Once the ultimate sacrifice was given by the only true, innocent, and acceptable offering that we could have from Jesus Christ, there was no need for an ironic priesthood to be on earth any longer. Let me explain why this is the case. 
The temple tabernacle of the children of Israel was composed of three parts in one temple, three in one, an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. And the outer court was an area for the Gentiles to, to, to be. And the inner court was an area for animal sacrifice and singing of hymns and worship to God. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the building by a five inch thick carpeted veil that hung top to bottom to the floor. And it could only be parted once a year when the Aaronic high priest entered to offer blood sacrifice on the day of atonement. Inside the Holy of Holies sat the Ark of the Covenant, which was overshadowed by the wings of two gold cherubs. And inside this Ark was a pot of golden manna, Aaron's budding rod, the tables of the law, and a golden censer. Before the high priest entered in to offer this shed blood of an unblemished animal for the covering of the sins of the people, he had bells attached to his robe and often a rope tied around his waist on times so that in the event he passed out or died in there, nobody else could go in and get him. They would drag him out by the rope. It was such a sacred place. Now, what is the significance of all this? Again, it all pointed to Christ and his final finished work on the cross. How? If you open up the book of Hebrews, it will tell you in its entirety. But let me summarize. You ready? Just as the high priest was the right lineage from Aaron, uh, and he was chosen to be that high priest because that tribe from Levi had a zeal for the glory of God, so was Jesus the perfect lineage because he was God himself. Okay? Two, where unblemished animals could only temporarily cover sin, it took the blood of an unblemished God to permanently wash sin away. Read Hebrews 9.12. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into that holy place or holy of holies, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Okay? Three, and while the high priest entered every year into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrificial blood for the people, Hebrews says Jesus entered once and for all to atone for the sins of the world forever. Hebrews 9.25, it says, nor yet that he should offer himself often. He doesn't continually offer himself up. As the high priest enter into the holy place year uh, every year with the blood of others. So this is telling you that Jesus once and for all did it. There's no need for this continual uh, sacrifice. It happened once or for all through him. And then it said, and as the high priest entered into the earthly holy of holies, where God temporarily dwelled with the children of Israel, Jesus entered now after his death and resurrection and ascension into the holy of holies and permanently resides in the, uh, this holy of holy with God. Hebrews 10, 12 said, but this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And as the veil was once uh, barred, as the veil once barred all but the Aaronic priesthood, priests, uh, and it barred them from access to the throne of God, requiring a special priesthood holder to be able to get in, the, the veil that once separated all of God's uh, all from God's presence was torn into, rent from top to bottom by God when Jesus died. And Jesus' flesh now becomes our veil, which is really interesting. Again, Hebrews 10.20 says, By a new and living way, 
which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. It's through him. There's no veil anymore, not an Old Testament veil, not a temple veil in these, in these Masonic temples that are put up all over the, uh, the world. It's the veil of Christ. It's his flesh by which we enter into those holies, holies, the, the flesh that was torn, the blood that was shed. Everything in the temporary temple or tabernacle from the table, the showbread, the censer, the manna, the Levitical priesthood to the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the whole, uh, Holy of Holies, the veil, the shed blood of every animal, all of it pictured and was accomplished, fulfilled completely by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Among the Gentiles, there is no need for a continuation of an Aaronic priesthood in any way, in any shape or form. Let me give you a final uh, reference or, or illustration to help you understand this point, okay? Suppose there's a young teenage girl who has a dream one night, and she dreams she's going to be the mother of a red-haired, curly, red-haired, freckled, dimpled baby. Okay, and the next day she sees a picture of the baby in a fashion magazine and it has curly red hair and dimples and freckles and she sees a picture and she takes a journal and she pastes it into that journal. And then years later she has another dream and she has a dream that this curly haired baby is now grown up and he's a really good basketball player. And she wakes up and the next day she sees in a magazine a picture of a curly red haired guy who's a basketball player. So she takes that picture out and she puts it in her journal as a reminder of her dream. And then she has another dream in her 20s and she dreams that this curly red headed basketball player becomes a doctor. And she sees in a magazine the following day a picture of a doctor with curly red hair and she puts it in her journal where the woman gets engaged and she gets married and uh, she, within a few years she has a baby and when the baby comes out it is a curly haired dimpled freckled baby. Ultimately, the, here's the question. Where should the young woman's attention now be? Should it be on the living baby or should it be on the pictures that told her in her dreams of the coming of that baby? Should she sit there and light candles to the pictures and let the baby sit there and go hungry? Should she, or should she devote all of her time, care, and attention to the living baby as the fulfillment of all the dreams she has had about being a mother for this child? It would be a case where the idea, the image, the foreshadowing of the object takes greater place in her heart than the actual living child itself if she were to focus on the picture she put in her journal. I mean, the boy, he, he lives a full life and she misses the whole thing because she doesn't realize he's fulfilled everything that she had dreamed about. The parallels are exact to the reestablishment of a priesthood when the priesthood has been completely fulfilled by the living Christ. The Bible is perfectly clear on why an Aaronic priesthood was established. It was a foreshadowing of something to come fulfilled by God's own son. Reestablishing an Aaronic priesthood is akin to a bakery taking pie tins and baking the most beautiful, tasty pies in those tins. And after they're baked, going and taking those pies and taking the actual pie and throwing it in the back room and then taking the tins and putting it out on the counter for people to gawk over and say, boy, that's a really nice looking tin, okay? The pie is what we want. That is Christ. 
fulfillment. The 10 was just a mere thing to bring him to, to pass. And that is what the LDS do. The priesthood pointed to Jesus and Jesus how come now has now come. Now we wholly look to him. Joseph Smith ignored this fact. And once again, he reinstituted something that God had long fulfilled. It's a sham and it's a shame. Let's open up the phones, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, if possible, LDS callers preferred, and turn down your television sets because we want to be able to hear you when you call. We have Scott from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We have Martha in West Jordan, Utah, and we have Michael, uh, all first time callers, but I wanna take this message. Caller states that the apostles all had to be there for Jesus' baptism and ascension. All had to be there. No, well, Judas wasn't there at his ascension, so I would disagree with that. Let's go to Scott in Colorado Springs, Colorado on line two. Scott, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Uh, you make some great points, and I just wanted to add one thing. Yeah. Um, Joseph Smith claimed that uh, John the Baptist gave him and Oliver Cowdery the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Yeah. But John the Baptist wouldn't have had the authority to give the Aaronic priesthood because he would have been from the line of Judah, um, because him and Jesus were second cousins and Jesus was from the line of Judah. So I just wanted to point that out. Is that, do you, uh, do you know that? I mean, definitively, are you just thinking that just because they were cousins, he was from that line? Well, their mothers were, were, were first cousins. Yeah. So that means that they shared a, uh, a common grandparent. So that, that one grandparent, or the, well, I guess that one grandfather and grandmother would have had to have been from the line directly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure John the Baptist was an Aaronic high priest. Pretty, was he? Pr yeah, I'm pretty sure. So on that, I mean, I know your logic, and it, it does make some sense, but I think he was uh, definitely the one, if someone was going to appear, it would have been the last one of that high priesthood, and John the Baptist would be him. Zachariah's father was also, he worked in the temple, in fact. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, I remember Natalie now just, that Zachariah was, uh, yeah. was a priest. Yeah. Huh. So, but, I'll, have to, I'll have to look into that. All right, man, out. thanks uh, for the call, Scott. Thanks for watching. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to uh, Martha and West Jordan, first-time caller. West Jordan, Utah. Martha, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you? Um, I just wanted to call and say thanks for your show. I met you at um, a Hamburger Place. I'm not going to give him a commercial, but I just, I'm very grateful that you have this show and you're on air, and you can make a lot of points that were um, denied for us growing as LDS children and just explain to us what really um, the priesthood is all about. Me being a, a, an LDS woman, it's really hard to really fully understood what it meant or what the purpose was. Yeah. And I'm just grateful that you are out there telling us what it really means. And I just wanted to, you know, do a thumbs up for your show, and I am just happy you're there putting the Word of Christ out there. Thanks, I Martha. being... Yeah, I grew up being LDS and a woman, and I really never understood uh, a whole lot about the priesthood, but I am grateful that you're out there, you know, making a clear statement of what the Lord really wants us to know. Thank you so and, much, my friend. Yes, and I also appreciate the fact that you apologize for those people. Uh, me as an LDS, uh, when I used to go to a conference, um, it was really, really 
grotesque to see those people. And now that I, I'm not LDS anymore, I am a Christian, born Christian, I appreciate you apologizing for people that act that way. And we shouldn't do that, no matter what religion or what belief anybody. That's just not right. I agree, Martha. Thank you so much for your call. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Couple things on that. Uh, you know, when I was LDS uh, growing up, I mean, they always talked about the priesthood, the priesthood, the priesthood, the priesthood. They talk more about priesthood, definitely, than they talk about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing him. Now, they'll say, well, it's all intertwined, but it really isn't at all. But that priesthood thing, I have to admit, and it doesn't really go well with the LDS, it doesn't go well for me. The, the, the blogs online will make fun of this, but I never really got it, man. It was like it was like a boys club, you know, and, and like everybody's in the club and you got to belong to the club and you got to, you know, and I just never really got it. And but I get it now. Now that I'm a Christian, I get exactly how messed up it is. And you really want to see messed up. Wait till we cover Melchizedek priesthood next week, because then you're going to see how it's not even a historical fact for Mormons. Joseph Smith doesn't even, there's no basis for it really. And that's really the coup de grace on the, or slamming the lid on uh, Mormon priesthood. So anyway, uh, while the operators clear your calls, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Uh, we have Jaru, Jaru in Arizona. Uh, he states that the word of wisdom is evidence that Mormonism is true. Those of you who don't know, uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, received a revelation, and he said in the 1830s, it's uh, not good for men to drink and women to drink hot drinks. It's not good for them to drink hard alcohol, a strong drink, and it's not good for them to uh, spit, chew, smoke tobacco. And uh, we've done a whole show on the Word of Wisdom. Check it out in our archives. And, you know, Joseph Smith, they act like he pulled that out of, some, out of nowhere. And God really was ahead of the game with Joseph on that. But actually, Joseph Smith was right in line, shoulder to shoulder, with the whole health reform movement at that time. Uh, Kellogg, we still eat Kellogg cereal, those breakfast cereal and the health movement and, and temperance societies and no drinking alcohol and no smoking cigarettes was as popular in the community then as Facebook is in our community today. And so Joseph didn't come up with any remarkable revelation. He just simply just dovetailed information that was going on around him and said, hey, I agree, it's good for us to eat healthy wheat, barley stuff in the morning and, and to avoid strong uh, drink. Anybody could see that. I mean, we knew that drinking strong drink and getting drunk wasn't good all the way back in Old Testament times. So it isn't any, in, it's not any revelation of, of that. In fact, Jesus spoke the opposite on the word of wisdom. He said, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. You know, Jesus said, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you call him a glutton and a wine-bibber. That's what he said about the Pharisees, how they viewed Jesus. He came eating Taco Bell and drinking Budweiser. And, and he came eating and drinking, and they said, you are a glutton and a wine-bibber. And then he said, and John, the Baptist, came, and he neither, neither ate nor drank. He ate locusts, and he didn't eat, drink alcohol because he was at Nazarite vow. And you said, he has a de demon. You see, Jesus understood it's not what comes in our mouth. It's what comes out of our mouths. And, you know, it's far worse, just to let you know I'm kind of on a rampage here, but it's far worse, far worse for somebody who does not drink alcohol and watches their weight 
and has everything right in their intake and dietary laws to look at another and say, oh, that, that, that disgusting wine drinker, that disgusting overweight person, that is far more sinful and detrimental to a person than for someone to be drinking uh, wine and eating McDonald's, Happy Meals. So you might wanna rearrange your thinking a little bit because when you go before God, he's gonna rip that heart out, that spiritual heart, and he's gonna let it beat in front of him and he's gonna look at it and say, you know, that is an ugly black heart. I don't give a rat's rear end what you ate and drank. Your heart's black as sin. Get out of my presence. Wasn't that a nice? <laughs> okay, so uh, we're going to Sarah in uh, Orem. Sarah, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Okay, I got my TV turned down. Sorry about that. Good girl. I'm just, you're, I'm just, you're just so beautiful to look at with that beautiful scarf and that, that beard. It's just so great. I just love it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> just to tell you that, real you. quickly, on your call before about the, the genealogy or the lineage of John the Baptist, yeah, the Baptist, the Jews, traced their lineage through the women. So yeah. Elizabeth was the second cousin of Mary, therefore she was the house of David. Now, it very well may be that Zachariah was from the Levites, or the Aaronics, right. but... I don't know that John Baptist was actually a priest because he was out there preaching in the wilderness against what they were doing. So, but he was from both houses. Okay. Well, I'll and, take. And I'll, the Jews do pass it through them through the women. So, I know that. Yeah. I know they yeah. do that today. I, I'm not sure, and I, I could be wrong. I don't know this. I'm, but I'm not sure then that's that was the case. And I am almost positive that there was something about John being. Uh, uh, having the Aaronic uh, priesthood authority. Now, that could be my Mormon roots that I'm, I'm going back to. But would well, someone I, please call? And, I mean, are you calling and clarifying this for us? Well, as far as my, my training is concerned, teaching, I mean, I talked to many Jewish scholars with regard to this because I was studying before I left the LDS Church. Uh-huh. And they told me, and I said, has that always been such? And they said, from the beginning of time. Wow. Well, very good, Sarah. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll, we'll chew on that things, and I'm sorry for, this is something I just don't know offhand. I can't, I'm getting my lines crossed between Mormon and Christian right now. Oh, hey, that's okay. Don't worry about it. No, I just yeah. love your scruffy beard. Okay. Th thanks, Sarah. Bye-bye. <laughs> God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Randy and Ogden. He's a first-time caller. Before we do, uh, Petra in North Ogden says, the peace I felt at conference confirms to me that the church is true. Uh, unlike what I feel watching your show. Petra, <clears throat> when I am visiting Tijuana, Mexico, and the traffic is going absolutely haywire, and the federales are seriously looking at arresting a lot of foreigners down there, and things are scary, I walk into a McDonald's, and I feel peace because it's the same McDonald's layout as I get when I'm in the States. And I feel a, a real peace, and there's no conflict there. And Ronald's sitting there, and he's smiling at me, and the fries taste good. And I mean, it's just a wonderful experience. And so I feel peace in, in McDonald's, too. But you know, Jesus said, look, I'm going to come, and I'm going to separate families. I'm going to break apart marriages. I'm going to have daughters-in-law hate their mothers-in-law, and I'm going to really break this deal up. Why? Because I'm not coming to bring peace, he said. I'm coming to bring a sword. 
That sword is the word of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it divides asunder between soul and spirit. Now, uh, Robert, what is it? Jeremiah? No, Jeremiah. Give me it to me. Jeremiah 110. Your, your favorite scripture, Robert. What is it? Now, Jeremiah 110, listen to this scripture. This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, and he says, See, I have this day set over thee the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build, and to plant. There is a time when it's not all about feelings that are really good. It's time when, when you are challenged with what you've been taught since you were little, that you actually say, okay, I'm willing to face the difficulty of these subjects. I'm willing to examine myself in the religion I claim to be true. And don't just keep shooting the heroin in your brain and walking around and saying, it's true, it's true, it's true. Conference is true. It's all true. You know, that's what they did in Johnstown while they drank the Kool-Aid. You've got to face the difficulty of this stuff. And God rewards that. He says, good for you. You go in and you dig deep and you face me and you say, what is truth? I want to know. And if it means I'm going to lose my life or my family or my job, it's okay. I want to know your truth. And God says, man, this is someone I can work with. This is someone I can share the truth with. And he sends the Holy Spirit to reveal his son. And your eyes open and you say, wow. So that's, that's what the difference that we're talking about, Petra, from North Ogden. Randy in Ogden, first time caller, line two. Randy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Randy. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Um, the first one is, um, what does the planet Kolob have to do with the Mormon faith? I, I've heard that they actually believe God is there, or that's where God reigns, and I kind of wanted to answer to that. Okay, let me answer uh, that one first. Okay. It, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a song in the old LDS hymnal that was the uh, hymnal I used when I was a kid, and it says, if you could high to Kolob. Uh, we always used to say, if you could get high on Kolob, but if you could high to Kolob, if you could get to Kolob, Kolob is the planet, according to Joseph Smith, that is closest to where God dwells. It's not the planet upon which he dwells. Okay. Okay. okay? All right. Why it's Good called enough. Kolob, I don't know. I don't know either. But okay, my second question is, I had heard also that the, some of the rites that are practiced within the temples are very close to the Masonic rites. Um, how true is that? Very true. There's okay. a little book you can walk in at any uh, Barnes & Noble or those big bookstores, and it's called Duncan's Book of Freemasonry. And you can go in and you can just read through that book. If you've been through an LDS temple, it's not anti-Mormon literature. It has nothing to do with Mormonism. It's a guy named Duncan who wrote the Freemasons rituals out in this little book. And if you've been through the Mormon temple, you can take a highlighter and you can just start marking because it's all taken from Masonry. Sandra Tanner at UTLM has a great reference of comparing Mormonism and Masonry and just exactly how much they borrowed from it. Okay. Yeah. Well, that answers a lot of questions for me, and I really appreciate it. I love your show. Thanks, it's Randy. It's very informative, and I'm glad, to, I'm glad that you're out there so that you know, hopefully some people can, can, you know, get out of this cult because that's yeah. what I believe it is. And, uh, you know, I would love to see it, uh, you know, the, the Mormon, you know, because I, I really believe that the, the uh, lay people of the church really are, 
you know don't even know the whole truth. They're just misled. So I agree I that they that they would come out and and you know accept Christ as their Savior and be saved. So thanks so much for all your hard work, Sean. Thank you for calling, Randy. Great question, and thanks for your viewership. You bet. Okay, bye bye. We are going to go to uh, Rockwell and Clearfield, Utah. He's a first-time caller, and he's LDS. Rockwell, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Rockwell, how are you? Good, good. Hey, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you'll have to uh, beg my pardon, I guess. I, I'm really nervous. I'm actually, I don't know if I'm technically still LDS. I still wear my garments. Um, but I'm just going through this transition where things just aren't making sense anymore. Uh-huh. Um, and it's been like this for the last year or two. Uh-huh. I was married in the temple. Uh, my wife is still LDS. Um, went, you know, didn't go on a mission, but did everything else pretty much by the book. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm, on tonight's topic, as far as priesthood, uh, it really struck a chord with me because uh, that's probably one of my biggest turning factors um, on the subject simply because... Uh, people used to praise me all the time for the blessings that I would give them. And uh, it always used to make me feel so ashamed when I'd go home because I know, I, I mean, I may have been a good speaker, a good presenter. I don't know what you want to call it, but, uh, you know, I, I just knew it wasn't coming from any kind of, you know, yeah. enlightenment from anyone else than just myself. And I, I put myself in the person's shoes and tell them what I want, thought they'd want to hear and, and uh, just go through the steps. And, and like I said, when you were talking about priesthood tonight, it just kind of brought up those memories. And Hey, Rockwell. Kind of, yeah. You know, you're on a path that I was, it's very similar to the way, it's the way I was too, because I would get praised for the, for the talks I would give or for the, the, the prayers you give or something like that, because it's very centered on praising the men, praising right. pra and, and what you do. And yet, the, the conflict between what my heart was really about and what I knew they were praising me for, I felt the same kind of, um, what's that word, hypocrisy, you right. know? Listen, Rockwell, do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Go to the Lord in the quiet of your room. You're not asking him for a sign. You're not asking him. All you're saying is, God, I don't believe Sean McCraney. I don't know if I believe the Mormon church. I don't really believe anything except I want you to help me to see. God, give me eyes to see. Help my heart to know what your truth is. I will, I will do what you want me to do. Please give me a new heart. Now, if you, if you, if you want to go and say I confess myself as a sinner, and please forgive me for my sin. Jesus, receive me and test it that way. That's even better. But either way you do it, God is going to work in you. You know, the thing is, and I'll be honest, too, is I don't know if it's from the teachings of the church that have warped my mind, but I honestly, I almost feel more towards atheism than I do anything else. Because I, know. I don't know. Again, I don't know if it's because my whole outlook on God is different, because I just feel like the person I was grown up to know, I don't think I know, and I don't think he exists. And, and I have other friends who are going through this transition, and a lot of them have just straight up went to atheism. Yeah. Oh, Rockwell, my, my heart is breaking for you, my brother, because what your experience is is very normal and normative from people who walk from Mormonism. And uh, you, you really have some dark oppression upon you, my friend, and I understand what you're saying. But look at nature. Look at the cosmos. Look at the cellular level of creation. This stuff did not happen by chance. 
If you have a child, that child did not create from nothing. This, the, so Satan is really going to work on you because you've been told this is the only true church to totally abandon church and religion altogether. And that's fine. But you can have a relationship with God that transcends everything. I used to, too, be a nihilist. I didn't believe in anything after I was burned out by that religion. But I am a dyed-in-the-wool Christian now because the Lord's changed my eyes in life. He will do it for you. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you. Okay, my brother. Keep in touch, okay? Thanks, man. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Pray for Rockwell, my friends. We're going to Rob in Salt Lake City, first-time caller. Rob, you're, and he's LDS. Rob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi there. First-time caller. Yes. And yes, uh, and sometimes listener, occasionally in the evenings when I have a chance, I turn you on and, and I'm interested in, in hearing what you have to say there. Uh-huh. Um, Several weeks ago, you had a discussion about your teaching about baptism and how you didn't feel that baptism was necessary. Right. And I guess I have a few questions about that. Um, I guess, first of all, I, you know, one of the scriptures that you had used um, to point that out was when Paul uh, was in, in jail and the, the doors were uh, made open and the jailer was... Uh, so shaken that he asked what he needed to do to be saved. And yeah. in Acts chapter 16, 31, he was told to believe, and I believe that's the verse that you used to uh, indicate that uh, it was no longer necessary to be baptized. Okay. And yet, two verses later, it says that he and his family were baptized in that self-same hour. Okay. And you would think that if, if in fact, <clears throat> if baptism wasn't necessary, that would have been a perfect time for Paul to say you don't need to do that. Well, I'm not saying you don't, you shouldn't be baptized. I think it is a viable and very important thing that we do as Christians. But in terms of salvation, no. There's only way, the only way we can be saved is by the blood of Christ. There is nothing else that can save a human being but his shed blood and our faith in it. And I guess maybe uh, to go along with that in Acts chapter 19, you know, three chapters later, Paul is on his way to Ephesus, and he runs into 12 disciples, and as he's talking with them, the conversation goes to, uh, you know, I'm sure about a lot of things, where they talk about the Holy Ghost, and they said they, they don't have the Holy Ghost, they haven't heard about it, and so Paul felt it necessary to rebaptize these 12 people and yeah. to lay his hands on their head to give them the gift of the Holy Ghost. But in chapter 11, in chapter 10 of Acts, the reverse is true. They had received the Holy Ghost, and Paul said, well, they've received the Holy Ghost. What prohibits them from water baptism now? So we have the absolute reverse there, uh, too. I've, again, I'm not saying water baptism isn't important. If it was important, Paul wouldn't have said, I am glad I have not baptized anybody except for two people. He said, I don't baptize anybody. And he says, I thank God I haven't baptized anybody. You see, if it was so important to salvation, do you think Paul would have said that? Well, I, I guess as long as we understand that. See, the problem is, is not with baptism. The problem is, is what saves you. Religion will always tell you that baptism is requisite because they want to do the baptism and they want to keep you in their membership roles. But the thief on the cross was not baptized and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And that paradise is heaven translated. 
So we know that baptism did not occur either vicariously by a Latter-day Saint in 1830 post or before he was that day with Christ in heaven without baptism. No font by the cross. So, I guess that's some question about that, because uh, when we say he'll be in heaven in three days later when he's talking to Mary Magdalene, the first person that had seen the resurrected Christ, uh, she's, he told her, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended to my father. father. Is in heaven. I understand that. But so, in, the, in the same uh, sense, when Jesus was talking about heaven there, he was talking about paradise, part of Sheol. There was a paradise and a prison. Prison was the hellish part. Paradise was where Abraham's bosom was. The thief on the cross went to paradise. And then when Jesus ascended, after he met with his father, he took all that were in paradise to heaven. The same word for the paradise part of Sheol is the same word for the heaven part for us today. There's no difference. So while that part hadn't gone to the father, it was still considered heaven. Yes, <laughs> certainly. So you want to believe somewhere. that baptism is necessary for salvation? Pardon me? That, is that important to you, Rob, to believe that baptism is necessary for salvation? I, I do, and maybe I have one more point to make with that. Okay. And that is, you know, in the four Gospels, I appreciate how they are so consistent in witnessing about the, the teachings of Christ and the acts that he did during his ministry. Okay, I appreciate them too, Rob. <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, as it comes down to the resurrection, it's great that they're consistent on that. And, and you think about... They're not consistent in terms of the resurrection. Well, okay. Uh, let me just maybe make the point here. And okay. What, so, um, I'm thinking when it gets to the end there that Christ... He comes back as a resurrected Christ, and he visits with his apostles and, uh, and the various people that see him. Before he ascends, I'm, I'm sure that this time has been great. He's taught them a lot of things, and he has one last message that he wants to leave ringing in their ears. And what is that? Matthew, Matthew. go forth, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. And the Great the Commission. And the same thing in Mark and Luke. All three of those are very consistent, almost word for word, saying baptize. There's, there's no problem with that. There's no problem. You're, not, you're misunderstanding. But it does not save anybody. Only the blood of Jesus saves. And it's only by blood. You can read in Hebrews, it says it is only by blood is there a remission of sin. Not by water. So, Rob, I know you've tried to lay out a real strong argument through uh, New Testament scripture, but it fails. Watch the show on baptism. We're out of time. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. All right. I'm going to break my I'm going to break my rusty cage and run I'm going to break I'm going to break my going to break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage.